So you and I are going to take a little walk in the woods in the back meadow and just catch up. So I haven't done podcast interviews in two or three weeks, um, which I didn't do on purpose, but just based on scheduling and, you know, what happens to people in September. Um, they were just pushed out a little bit. You can hear the, the leaves crunching under my feet. That is from the uh, poplar in our backyard, which apparently is the great, great, great grand tree of a very famous August poplar that, uh, that lives on the campus of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which um, was planted here by the previous owners of this house who um, volunteered for many years to work at the Arboretum, North UNC Arboretum. And so uh, this tree is just gorgeous, sort of straight up and down. The, it's called the, it's a tulip poplar um, because the leaves are shaped sort of like tulips. And most of the leaves are now uh, brown. I'd say that maybe half of them are on the ground and half of them are still up uh, waiting, waiting to fall, holding on. Uh, there is no breeze to speak of right now. Usually when there's a breeze, a few of them will come fluttering. But uh, that's that. <laughs> and anyway, so haven't didn't do a podcast last week, which is very rare. I think there's only been one other week since I started in like 2013 where I haven't released one on a weekly basis. And it gave me a chance to reflect on like, what is this podcast and what do I want to do going forward? And do I want to keep going forward? And so that's something I'd love to hear from from you guys. Um, but at the moment, I still have, you know, a lot of people that I want to talk to, which is which was the impetus in the beginning. Oh, you know what we got here? Um, I'm walking past the back of our big compost heaps. And one of the things that grows really well in compost heaps are these sun gold uh, cherry tomatoes. And so they're all over sort of on the ground here and climbing up. These, these plants are doing much better than anything that we intended. So I'm just going to pop. Mm. Oh my gosh, there's still a couple in my mouth. One more. And now I'm passing the back area of the garden where I put up a little fence, opening and closing the latch. And so there's, there are some people that I um, didn't get to interview. You know, people are, are busy or they have other priorities. And believe it or not, not everybody wants to sit down for an hour and talk to me. Um, and so, and there are people I haven't reached out to because I'm sort of shy or in the middle of their books, or I assume they're going to be too busy or too important to, to give me time, um, which is a wonderful assumption to check by sending them an email or sending an email to the publicist at their publishing house. And a lot of them say yes. But rather than finding someone to interview, um, I thought I would just sort of walk and talk with you. And I don't know how long this is going to be. Probably not the full, you know, hour-ish. Oh, another... Uh, I'm in the backwoods. We had um, Hurricane Ida come through here. Uh, a couple weeks ago. It didn't do a ton of damage, certainly not like the western coast of Florida, but it did take down a lot of things that were ready to come down. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of tops of trees that were felled. We have back here, I'll be quiet for a second so you can just hear 
sort of a, a messy back 40. Um, it's got some oak trees, a lot of uh, maples and hickories, and um, some uh, red, red cedars, but a, and also a lot of rocks. So I suspect that the rocks were sort of pushed here by, by bulldozers or tractors uh, when this land used to be uh, agricultural. And, and this, this area here where I'm right now in the shade of, of these very tall trees, um, I can see large, large limbs down. Um, they're not going to be, you know, firewood for, for at least a year. They're still, some of them are still quite, quite alive. Haven't realized that they're no longer uh, connected to source, to, to Mother Earth. Sort of like those cartoons where someone runs off the cliff and they don't fall until they look down and realize that they're not standing on solid ground anymore. So let's keep, keep walking. So there's a lot of sort of knee-high maples uh, growing in this area and some fallen trees with full of fungus along the the barks and oop that was a I thought it was a solid log but it was a, a hollow log that's just covered covered with moss so let me get to a spot here where I can think more expansively maybe you can find a a rock to sit down on. So that one looks pretty sharp. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna just take a moment, breathe and center, and invite you to do the same. As I said, this is gonna be a very different kind of podcast. So, uh, you know, if you're operating heavy machinery or driving a car or doing something else that requires most of your attention, um, you know, don't close your eyes or, you know, lie down or do anything relaxing. But uh, if you're in the mood to sort of, you know, chill out among some nature. So um, I've been thinking a lot about how nature is this hidden healer. For most of us, it's not. It's, it's sort of this very sort of optional thing that we have to go plan to spend time around. And as someone who's been working as a health coach and also as a life coach, executive coach, business coach, just sort of helping people achieve what they want to achieve, realizing more and more how much we get in our own way through just basically nervous system dysregulation. That instead of being in what Stephen Porges, the, the originator of polyvagal theory, calls social engagement, which is sort of a parasympathetic nervous system while being alert and mobilized, that we're very often, a lot of us, especially people who think of themselves as high achievers, or, or a lot of us just in, in the modern world, are running on sort of sympathetic fumes, on a little bit of fight or flight. Um, we had a call of the, the latest cohort of the Coach Training Academy, and one of, someone was talking about how their perfectionism can get in the way of really embracing the course and doing all the practices and the learnings. And I mentioned that, that perfectionism um, is actually a 
sign of being in sympathetic fight or flight. The nervous system is just activated. And so and I got, that's an insight that I got from uh, Deb Dana, who's a clinical social worker who's done a lot of work on bringing the polyvagal theory into clinical settings to helping real people with uh, overcoming trauma and, and just stabilizing their mood. And, you know, as a coach, I don't do any of that. I'm not dealing with healing the past or, or, or sort of deep wound addressing. And there's nothing that my clients can't do better from social engagement than from sympathetic arousal, from activated fight or flight or fawn. Which, um, no, I'm sure, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure that, you know, if the issue was I need to get out of the way of a speeding car, then you'd rather be in sympathetic. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about coaching and helping people. That all the strategies in the world, all the tactics, all the skills, all the knowledge, all the opportunity, all the planning means very little until we are basically... In a in, in correct alignment with our environment, so you know if I walk into a room and my nervous system tells me everyone there is a threat, everyone there is a competitor, right? Which is which is something my nervous system has has done for a long time, and this was an insight that I got from the book, uh, the extraordinary gift of being ordinary, which I. Uh, podcasted two, two or three weeks ago with Dr. Ronald Siegel, the author. And one of the things I realized is how much time I have spent in my life trying to prove to myself and to others and to the world that I'm better than, that I'm special, that people need to really listen to me, pay attention to me, and that I'm right and they're wrong, and the energy that goes into that. So, you know, I would go to some networking event and, and I'm not saying that I was you know, an asshole about this. I'm not saying that I wasn't either. It's not really for me to say. But that certainly there was this underlying energy of how do I get these people to see how important I am? How can I impress them? How can I not? I just don't want to be another, another attendee here. I want to be celebrated. I want to be treated special. I want to do something so everyone goes, oh, Howie, it's, it's Howie. It's Howie. Can I have your autograph? Can I take a picture with you? And I'm exaggerating, of course, but that was a form of the energy. So to recognize that that energy, which has fueled so much of my life, and even, you know, you could argue in good ways, like I have, I've put it to use, you know, becoming a figure in the plant-based community, in the health world, in the executive coaching world, before that in the digital marketing space, um, you know, that, yeah, I have, you know, basically put that energy to use in, in directions that I think are good for other people and good for the planet sometimes. I'm not so sure about all the digital marketing stuff that I help people with. Um, I'm kind of glad not to be in that business anymore. But recognizing that that was all based on an autonomic nervous system that viewed everybody around me as a competitor in one form or another. And, you know, and it could go to the ridiculous, right? I would be visiting a mentor in the business world. This was, you know, 20 years ago or so, 19, 20 years ago. And they had a much better business than I did, much bigger, much more 
income, much more stability, much more vis visibility. And I was with them. They were packing up a box and they had a, uh, a tape dispenser, a packing tape dispenser that just went on real smooth. And mine, I have one at home too. Mine went, <laughs> made a loud noise whenever you used it. And, so, and my mind went, oh, that's what I need. If I got a better tape dispenser, then I would have a better business. And just, you know, the ridiculousness of it hit me in that moment, which is, I think, why I remember it to this day. That, that I was always looking for, like, what do they have that I don't have? What do I have to do to be equal? What do I have to do to get to be better? And so that's all a, an outgrowth of this fundamental mismatch between my nervous system's perception of the environment and how the environment actually is. So there's birds singing here. You hear them? Come on, bird. Do it again. <laughs> there you go. So birds singing, indicate, that, at least that song, indicates it's safe here. There's no predators around. And, you know, our brains are hardwired when we hear birdsong to relax a little bit. Now, I don't know if you can hear, but in the distance, I'm hearing some sort of engine. It might be... That sounds like a chainsaw. <laughs> so that is a very different sound. It has a very different effect on the human nervous system, right? The bird song and being here in this wooded area with a, with a meadow nearby where, you know, if I look behind me, I have a pretty long vista, probably about a third of a mile to the tree line where I can sort of see, so I know there's no predators um, between me and there. And then here in the woods with all these insect noises, and now there's a tiny gentle breeze. Um, boy, that, that chainsaw is ironic at this moment. Um, but this, you know, just being here in nature, there is a way in which my body naturally downregulates into a more safe, engaged place where, like, who am I going to compare myself to here? The trees? Like, oh, that tree's better than me? And then you look and, like, there's all, every tree, there's, there's, you know, hundreds, hundreds of trees here, probably five or six different main species, probably 90% of them are five or six species, and they're all different. This one, the trunk bends slightly to the left. Uh, this one is all sort of gnarled. This one is split in two nearly from, from the base. Um, this one's practically fallen over and is still growing. This one goes straight up until it has a wiggle at about 20 feet high. This one is very, very skinny and tall. This one is thicker around, around the trunk. And they've all become that way based on their environments, their little micro-environment, the soil they grew up in, the, the pitch of the ground, how much sunlight they could get and how they had to mold themselves to get it, uh, wind forces, animals that were nibbling on them at certain, at certain points. Whether, um, I'm going to move, sorry, that, uh, that chainsaw is more of a distant noise, so you're going to hear some footfalls for a little bit now. Um, you know, that each one 
is perfectly itself in its environment. And there's a lesson there for me. That you know, there's no the trees aren't going, boy, I wish I was better, or am I am I a good enough tree? Am I fulfilling my purpose as a tree? What's the meaning of my life as a tree? They're not doing that. And so there's there's a way that just coming into nature, even a little bit of nature, even if for a little bit, is a way to reset our nervous system and recenter in the truth that we are basically organisms, right? The same way this tree, this moss, this fungus, this um, prickly shrub, this grass, uh, little poison ivy, that we are an organism and we have organismic imperatives for survival and we have forms that we take right like the you know the tree that is buffeted by wind forces and has to to bend around to get enough sunlight isn't going to turn into a carrot or a goat or a mushroom it's still going to be a tree and it's going to be very much itself as a tree and that's true for us too that's true for me that there is a me in here and just like trees don't sit around thinking, well, how do, how do I be the best tree that I can be? Well, we don't have to do that either. There is a, a grace in just sort of being that is available to us when we manage to up, you know, down-regulate our nervous system from sympathetic fight or flight into a parasympathetic balance with the sympathetic, where we are alert, active, fully engaged in the world, and we aren't responding to the world in, out of fear. We aren't, we're not, we don't have a neuroception, Stephen Porges's word, for the perception of our nervous system that is not, that is below uh, conscious awareness, and good thing because it works 24-7, right? Neuroception happens when we're sleeping too, right? So you ever wake up in the middle of the night with a strange noise, well, you didn't wake up with normal noises, right? The sound of, you know, your partner snoring or someone flushing a toilet, if that's a common evening occurrence, uh, wouldn't wake you up. But let's say if you're sleeping alone in a hotel room and you hear the toilet flush, you might be woken up. And that's your neuroception. It, it operates under the surface 24-7. And when it's mismatched to the environment, we can have these chronic states of sympathetic reactivity, like the one I described, where everybody around me is some form of a competitor, is some form of a threat. And I think living in our modern society, and I won't say capitalist, because I think it occurs around the world um, these days, I would say sort of modern, cut off from our indigenous roots cultures, is scarcity is built into everything. There's just not enough to go around and we all have to fight and scramble for what there is. And our job is to consume as much as possible. And, and for those of us who want to be producers, to produce as high value as possible so that we can make more money. So this basic orientation of, the, of modern society uh, and along with the basic philosophical understanding that we are each atoms in the universe, we are individuals not really connected 
We're not, we're not really part of anything. We were born alone, we die alone, and we struggle through life. That those orientations, which are very much sort of modernist ways of thinking, actually contribute to the need to be in constant fight or flight. So when I talked last with um, Australian um, indigenous artist and author and philosopher Tyson Yunkaporta, he was talking about how in a tribal society where everyone is, has each other's back and everyone is embedded in the natural landscape where people are truly indigenous, they're truly native to their lands, that you, you don't worry about predators because you would know about them. You're, they're, they're, you're embedded in a system that would tell you. It's like the difference between having a really good fire alarm system in your house so you can relax or, or not having a system and having to worry every five seconds is something on fire. Right? We are like the, the people without the fire alarm, without the fire detection system. And so it's very easy for us to get into a neurological state of where's the fire? Where's the fire? Where's the threat? Where is the scarcity? What do I have to do to get ahead? It's, only, it's up to me. It's up to me only. And out here in nature, there are different lessons being taught. Right? I just, a, a leaf just fell right in front of my eyes. Uh, with the, you can maybe hear the breeze now. All right, so there's a lesson of naturally letting go, of not holding on. And so an, another book that I'm reading right now, and I just had a wonderful email uh, conversation with, uh, who's going to be on the podcast uh, middle of November, is Dr. Connie Zweig, who wrote a book called The Inner Work of Aging. And the, the, I'd say the, the tagline for the book is From Role to Soul, where, you know, she's in her late 60s, I'm in my late 50s, so I guess I'm a precocious ager, uh, that as we get older, we, um, we can either cling to things that we can't cling to, like our youth, our looks, our health, our importance, our capabilities, our talents, our memories, right, our um, pain-free bodies, all of that's going away. Where we, we hang on to none of it. And so the, the, this part of life, and I'm, you know, I'm not quite there yet where I want to give up my roles, but instead of from role to soul, I'm thinking about, well, how can I infuse my roles with more and more soul to allow myself to, to be the tree that I am and was always meant to be, um, to, to gracefully let go the way that tree just let go of the leaf, or I don't know, maybe the leaf let go of the tree, but to understand that I am mortal, we're all mortal. And, you know, it's interesting being part of the plant-based and holistic health world, because there's a beautiful way in which we look at life and say, I'm going to treat this body like a temple, like the gift, the holy gift that it is, that was given to me to cherish, that was a tool, an instrument for my consciousness to play and frolic in the world, to experience the world, to suffer in the world, to have the whole catastrophe, to love, to share, to give, to learn, 
to be generous with my gifts. And there's a dark side to the plant-based holistic health world, which is if I do get sick, then that's a threat to my worldview. Well, I've heard people say they were, they were sort of ostracized from plant-based groups when they got cancer. Right? No, you must, not, you must have been cheating. You must have done something wrong. Right? That there is this valorization of youthfulness. And it's great to see you know, members of our community in their 80s and 90s and, and people still, you know, 103 year old surgeons and 105 year old runners. And it's certainly a testament to the power of our lifestyle and our diet to slow the process of physical aging. But it's easy to get caught up in thinking that that's like a moral victory. And therefore, when we do get old, when we do die, when we do become disabled, it's not a failure. Eh, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to hide. Right? So this, this leaf that flew by me, and here I see a couple more as the, as the wind picks up a little bit. This leaf is saying, it's let go to the inevitable. And who knows what I'll be next? You know, I'm, I'm not a sentientist. I did have a, a sentientist on the podcast basically saying, like, you can't, we have to, you know, be totally objective about reality and, like, don't believe in anything or anything you can't see or spiritual or woo-woo. Um, I don't know enough to believe or not believe. Um, but it certainly seems to me that this world is bigger than my capability for understanding it. And that these trees are more than just, uh, you know, carbon cycling machines. That there is sentience here, there is wisdom here. And you know what? Even if I don't know, even if I can't prove it, even if I can't do a Turing test uh, with this, with this uh, sycamore in front of me here, how I treat it when I think it's a sentient being that has needs, wants, desires is better than how I treat it when I think it's just a resource, just something to cut down for firewood or something to provide so many uh, carbon offsets and to pump so many pounds of oxygen and to um, store so much carbon underground and, and to prevent so much uh, soil erosion. You know, there's a, there's a way in which treating the world as animated allows us to you know, get back to that state of polyvagal social engagement, to be in a parasympathetic balance, to feel like we belong, right? Brene Brown talks beautifully about the difference between belonging and fitting in. We're fitting in or in my case, stand, fitting in by standing out, by having to be better than everybody else, being more impressive, being the one that everybody talks about, being the, the funniest speaker or the most engaging speaker or the speaker who got the most people to come up afterwards. Right? Like letting go of that and just being myself. It turns out 
that just being myself gets more of the important things done. It's not like I have to compromise, I miss out on achieving my true ambitions. Now, it's true, I miss out on achieving some of the the role-based, ego-based, perfectionist-based, fear-based ambitions, the kind that, that has created, you know, the billionaires that we see kind of destroying the planet and, uh, you know, fighting each other and, and, and creating uh, social media empires that, that lead to, you know, hatred spreading like a conflagration. You know, there are, there's, there are certainly ways in which I have stopped trying to achieve ego-based uh, goals and outcomes. Not all, certainly, not even most perhaps, but there's some, there's some lines now that didn't exist before. But in terms of, like, what am I here to do now? Another book that I'm reading, I'm about a quarter of the way through, is this beautiful book by uh, mythologist Michael Mead, M-E-A-D-E, called uh, Fate and Destiny, the, True, the Two Agreements of the Soul. And basically, destiny, or fate, rather, is like the, the opportunities and constraints that you're born with or that happen to you, that are not, not, that are not in your control. You are born in such and such a family, in such and such a time and place. Your physical body has such and such gifts and such and such limitations. Um, this is what happened to you. You're, this person abandoned you. This person abused you. This person gave you an opportunity. All that is fate. This is the purpose of fate is to give us each a unique destiny. So he talk, you know, he's a mythologist, so he talks about myths, but he doesn't talk about myths like you know, YouTube clickbait, you know, the myth as in not true. He talks about myths as, as true stories about life, how it really is. So one of the myths is the acorn myth, which is a, a beautiful uh, myth to be talking about right here with, with plenty of, of, of lovely uh, hat-capped acorns at my feet, um, that every living creature you know, basically every human, think of us as acorns, that, you know, the acorn that comes from an oak tree is destined to grow into another oak tree if it gets the chance. It's not going to grow again into a carrot, a mushroom, a goat. And each of us, we are not tabula rasa. We are not blank slates. We are not simply empty vessels for the universe to write on or for culture to mold us or for our parents to mold us, that each of us is, comes into the world, is born as a unique soul uh, with unique gifts, capabilities, and our job, and what fate does is we pay attention, fate puts us in situations whereby we can uncover, discover those gifts, begin to activate them, and then we have the choice about to what extent and how richly we want to share them with the world. That's a brief oversimplification. The, the other uh, myth that Michael Mead talks about a lot in this book is the genius myth. And again, not about a lie, but the fact that each of us has a genius inside us. What he calls, you know, the soul is our special abilities. No, there's nobody like us. Nobody like you, 
in all the world, even if you have a twin, identical twin, you're very different. So, so the genius from, from, from uh, the original meant sort of your animating spirit that makes you special, that makes you unique, that makes you indispensable in the world. It's not like a prodigy or, or someone who's smarter than everyone else. So you don't, you aren't, it's not that you are a genius, you have a genius. Each of us has a genius. Now, I was thinking like that's a really interesting juxtaposition with Ronald Siegel's book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. Because isn't having a genius, being irreplaceable, indispensable in the world, contradictory with the idea of just being ordinary? And I think to a certain extent it is. I think maybe the word ordinary um, comes with a connotation that isn't particularly helpful. That what that it's not that we're ordinary, it's that everything is extraordinary. Now, isn't that a nice way to look at the world? It's not like, okay, we're all we're, we're ordinary. Well, if we're, if we're all of the same level of importance, the same level of significance, the same level of isness. This, so if we're not better than anything else, if we don't have what, what Tyson Young Caporta calls the, the primary sin of uh, of modern times is narcissism. I am better than you. You are worse than me. I am greater than you. You are less than me. So what Ronald Siegel and Michael Mead are both talking about is a fundamental equality between us and all other humans. And the sentientists would argue between us and all other animals, living, living things. And I would extend possibly to plants and rocks and water and clouds. Right? That there's nothing greater and nothing lesser than. And it's, it's one of the lessons that many people who have uh, explored psychedelics have come back with. This notion of once the default mode network of the brain is turned way down, the, the part of the brain that goes, what's in it for me? Is there a threat here? Is there food here? Is there a mate here? Is there a place to rest here? And is this you know, part of that autonomic nervous system that we're thankful for, right? It keeps us alive. It's kept us uh, generations going back to the very beginning of time of our ancestors alive so that we could be here in this moment. But sometimes it's nice to turn it way down and see, oh, if I'm not the center of the universe, if there is no center of the universe, then this tree, then this leaf, then this mold on the ground is just as important to the, to the whole scheme of things as I am. And it's not to say one's ordinary or one's not ordinary. It's, it's, it's the, the word becomes meaningless. The idea of comparison, the idea of ranking becomes ludicrous from, from that perspective. So I can still hear very faintly the, um, the chainsaw. I don't know if you can hear it or if you were able to hear it at all. I don't know about the sensitivity of this microphone. It's a new, new microphone setup that uh, I've been using and it feels like it's giving me a lot of freedom. I wasn't really able to do this in the woods with what I had before. It would have been rather difficult and it would have required a lot of battery packs and, and stuff like that. Um, 
But what it's reminding me of is this is another key feature of Stephen Porges's work on polyvagal theory is that when we are in a state of fight or flight, in sympathetic arousal, we are, it actually changes how we perceive the world. It's not a metaphor. It's not a psychological state only where, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when you're, you buy a red convertible, all of a sudden you see red convertibles everywhere. It's not just psychological or cognitive phenomenon. It's actually physiological. That when our nervous, central nervous system activates, when our autonomic nervous system activates sympathetic fight or flight, it, the muscles in our ears actually change the shape of our eardrum and of the, of the ear canal so that we prioritize sounds of threat, which are basically low, low sounds, which are basically um, you know, animal growls, predator growls. And a chainsaw is a really good example of that low-frequency sound. Um, and so when we perceive the world as a threat, we actually don't hear other people's voices as well, especially the, the archetypal safety voice, the, 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 the cadence and prosody of the mother talking so- soothingly, singing, where the, the, the voice that soothed us in utero. So coming out here into the woods to get to escape from the loud industrial fear noises of civilization and having one follow me here was very beautiful because it allowed me to make that point and I think it may have stopped and here I am trying to be prosodic trying to give you a voice of comfort and allowing you and me to at least orally AU orally luxuriate in this patch of nature so I hope this has been Worthwhile. I would love to hear from you if you think this is a, uh, a useful use of the podcast, if you'd like to hear more of these sort of meanderings of my mind and of my feet. And again, I'm really grateful to you for, for being here, for sharing this with me, for listening. And I wish you a good week, and we'll talk again soon. All right, so that's a wrap. I'm back in the office now. And I'm going to talk a little bit about movement and garden news. So movement, um, really been just doing ultimate. And actually, the, the Qigong in the morning, I'm doing this uh, Qigong course 30 minutes in the morning and sometimes 15 or 30 minutes in the evening. It does feel like exercise, but a different different kind. Like I'm not sweating. I'm not tired. I'm, I, I miss that feeling of, boy, I, I, I worked really hard. <laughs> um, so... Mostly it's ultimate two or three times a week, Saturdays, and then Mondays and Wednesdays or Mondays and Thursdays. Um, and one of the guys in the team is organizing sort of track workouts one night a week. It's a little bit too many nights out for me, but uh, I'm a little bit inspired. And I realize I haven't done much with kettlebells in a while. So I'm looking for some sort of online course or or group or something that will get me back into some body weight or uh, weightlifting resistance training Um, and got two new pairs of zero shoes they had a they had a sale so i got a couple of pairs of of red prios hopefully will last me a while and hope they'll inspire me to go back get back out on the road running i'm waking up in the morning a little bit early for um, road running I, i really like to go when it's light and i can be seen as well as see 
but I used to run in the dark with a headlamp, so maybe I can I can rouse myself to do that again soon. Garden news: We planted. Um, well, we we're about to plant some new um, strawberry plugs. Uh, cleared another bed next to the one that we already have, and cl- cleaned things up a lot. I, I harvested about fifty giant loofahs, which. Uh, they basically are those like loofah sponge things, but they're covered in what looks kind of like a very rough green casing, like a overly ripe, overly rough uh, zucchini or cucumber. And you peel those off and you let the insides dry. And it's basically a kind of like bath sponge sort of thing. Um, have one more bit, one more Thai basil to harvest and some lemongrass. And then the fall crops are starting to go up. And uh, this weekend, Mia and I put in the the hoops and the cover cloth for when it gets cold so we can keep growing our, our lettuces and our greens. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franza, Jeanette Benham, Gila Serk, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 